Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. The series that we started at the beginning of the year is in the Gospel of John, which I encourage you, if you see a Pew Bible around you, or if you like to use your app, in the Pew Bible, we're on page 861, if that helps you to find it. We're in the beginning of the second chapter of John. So as we start into this Gospel series that we're in right now, we watch and we just learn as John has collected these stories that he has heard from other people around him and that he has experienced firsthand the stories about Jesus. And at some point, John realized it was time. Time continued to pass. These stories that were handed down as culture normally did through uh, um, oral tradition, it was time to record them, to actually put them into writing. And so what we're going to do is spend most of our time in this series in the stories that John has decided to put into to his gospel. The things he picked were so important for us to know about the time when Jesus was um, ministering here on earth. But he starts his gospel, as we talked about last week, different than any of the other three gospel writers. He decides to start going all the way back to the beginning, in the beginning, a Genesis 1 whisper, right? And he talks about how Jesus, as the word, was not only with God, but Jesus was God. The beginning of John's gospel is amazing, poetic, cosmic scale theology. It's absolutely beautiful. And so as we start, we're going to listen once again to how John introduces the person and the presence of Jesus. So he says this in the beginning. Let this just wash over you in the cosmic poetry kind of category. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on to say in 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I read that over us again so that we can go into every story with that kind of huge, broad, cosmic view of what's happening and then go in to the little details of each story that John chooses to tell us. So last week as we started, we did a quick review, the what, how, why, and who of the gospels, specifically John's gospel. And you can listen to that if you missed it. The podcast is sermon only. Facebook has the whole service online. I encourage you to listen because we're going to be in this gospel for so long. It's really helpful to hear some of that background of who we're listening to and why we're doing this listening. So I encourage you to take a listen to last week if you weren't here. But just as a reminder about John's why, John's purpose. He does us the privilege of stating very clearly what his purpose is in taking pen to parchment and writing all this down. He says this towards the end of his gospel in John 20 verses 30 to 31. 
John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's the same purpose now for us that it was for John's original readers and hearers of his collection of story. He wants the same thing for us that he wanted for those original folks. He wants us to live into this purpose. I'm going to record the stories so that you too can encounter Jesus because you missed the first moments of it that I got to experience, right? So let me record what happened so you too can have these encounters with Jesus so that you can believe and by believing, we too can experience life in his name, in Jesus's name, not just in the heaven to come, yes and amen, but here and now that by believing we can experience life in his name. And that's why we're excited to be in John in the start of a new year. We want to start our year off expectant as we cast our gaze simply upon Jesus, just to soak up these stories and to be formed as disciples who are listening, who are learning and experiencing Jesus, both through the stories then, but still now, because through the Holy Spirit, that's how this works. We still experience Jesus in these stories now. So part of how John does this in our overview, how he recorded them, was to let each story linger. Where some of the other gospel um, writers just had some really quick, let's get all this down, and they moved very quickly through um, different encounters, which is great. I love the difference between among the gospels, right? I love it. But John chooses to linger, and we want to do the same thing. We are not going to rush through these conversations, through these encounters. We want to allow them to linger, and because of that, we have these reading plans. The bookmarks are up here for you to grab, like I said, because we want to sit each week and dwell in the story that we're going to sit in every Sunday. And part of this, I got to experience this last week. Uh, uh, Aaron and Sunghei are my GC leaders. And when I was at their house last week, um, Sunghei led us through the practice of simply reading this story and sitting around the table and say what stood out to us. And those of us who have read it a lot or we're not very familiar with the story, we just shared, like, what do you hear this time? Some of it was totally silly. Some was really deep. Some of it was just a word that stuck out. It was really beautiful to let the story linger around a dining table and just to see the variety of what gets stirred up in our hearts. So we are going to be encouraged through this series to do the same thing by reading on our own and coming together, a both-and approach to lingering in these gospel stories. So while John's introduction takes us to this cosmic theological poetry, he then jumps right in with stories. So I'm going to catch us up really quickly from that intro paragraph to where we are today. So we hear that John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, who had gone out and said, hey, make way for the one who's coming after me. That's my paraphrase. He was the one who said, I'm not the one, but I'm saying the one is coming. So get ready. That was John the Baptist's job. And so he was saying to people, Hey, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know who this one was. And people start to follow now Jesus instead of John, as John says that. And so in that moment, transferring from following John the Baptist to following Jesus, we see Andrew, who then also calls his brother Simon, who we come to know as Peter through the story. Anyway, so Andrew grabs his brother and is like, hey, we found the Messiah 
John said it. I've been following John. I believe him. Now I'm going to follow Jesus. You should come. And so we start to get a few followers. They've chosen to follow Jesus. And then we see Jesus specifically calling some other people, Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is the one who famously snarkily, is that a word? with snark said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's the snarky one. And Jesus was like, I saw you under the fig tree. And what we have there is what's called a word of knowledge, something you could not otherwise have known, but through the Holy Spirit, you have this word of knowledge. And all of a sudden, Nathaniel's like, oh, you're him. I'm following you. So we have this group starting to form, those who choose to follow Jesus, who have been called to follow Jesus. And so we see this group growing and then picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. Three days later, we pick up at a wedding in Cana. Cana is about four or five miles away from Nazareth, and so it's relatively close by. Let's just review a few things. Here are some things that we do know. Both Jesus and Mary, John actually doesn't name Mary, he just calls her the mother of Jesus, but we, we're going to call her Mary. Jesus and Mary and the disciples have been invited uh, according to verse 12, it sounds like the brothers of Jesus were there as well. So we know some of the people who have been invited to this wedding. We also know this. In that culture, a typical wedding celebration was not a one evening event, but rather about multiple days, maybe like a week-long celebration of this blessed event. So way more than a few hours. Talk about lingering, right? It was a long celebration that the community would engage in. Here's what we also know. The wine ran out before the celebration was over. Now, to be clear, a Jewish ceremony honoring a wedding was not about having a week-long rager. So it wasn't that kind of a tone in the wine running out. It wasn't that. Moderation is very important. But the host of an event like that would be responsible for providing for all of the needs, including food and wine and everything else, for the guests for the duration of that visit. And so we know that in a special celebration, you can't run out of provision for the people who have come and are now your guests. These are things that we know. There's also a couple of things in this story that we don't know, but we seem to have pretty good hints about. Let's look at some of those. We see that uh, Mary, Jesus's mother, cares deeply that the wine has run out. We see in her concern, here's what we don't know. Like, was she, did she have a specific role of responsibility? She's there with not only Jesus, but probably some of her other children. And is she a close relative? We don't know what her relationship with this burden is, but we can tell, we are hinted at the fact that she really emotionally is carrying this concern about a social misstep of running out of wine. And that's something else that we can know about that culture. It is a hospitality culture. If somebody comes to your home, even unannounced, never mind all of our boundaries, the answer is, yes, come in, I will make room. You would do anything to be hospitable. I had to laugh about this because somewhere towards the end of, pandem the end of the pandemic, I started to see these advertisements for these banners for parties that told the guests to leave by nine. 
And I feel like that's kind of like our boundary vibe right now, right? Have you seen these? And I'm like, yeah, I get that. And so like people will hang these and I, I love it. I mean, whatever, we're, we're not in the same culture anymore, but never ever in this culture, somebody shows up, you make room, you feed them, you give them your family's food rather than let them not have food. This is a hospitality culture. It is also what we would now call an honor and shame culture. What that means is the social currency of the time was honor or its inverse, shame. So we might be called a relevance culture. If our currency is platform, likes, followers, etc., theirs was an honor-shame culture. If you did not provide the hospitality, instead of honor, your entire family would have a mark of shame against them. That's what a big deal this would be to not be a good, a good host. So the situation, for whatever reason, comes to Mary's attention, and she cares enough to take this social misstep to the attention of Jesus. Let's all remember from our time recently in Advent, Mary knows exactly who Jesus is, right? Mary, did you know? Mary knew, right? Okay, so Mary knows. Um, so she decides this is a big enough deal that I'm going to take it to this son of God who happens to also be my son, right? That's a pretty big, that's a big boldness in my mind. Mary cares that much. That's my point. Okay, so here's what happens. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Quickly, we need to do a little cultural clarification here. Um, when Jesus says, woman, it does not carry the same misogynistic undertones that it does in our culture to say, woman, whatever you say after that isn't going to go well. I mean, just whatever you say, okay? That's not going to go well. Just watch out. Okay, so it does not carry the same tones. We need to allow this language to belong in its original culture. So we need to remove the tone that we tend to read into that, a tone of contempt, misogyny, whatever else. So remove it. Just, just trust and do it. So it actually, this woman is the same way that Jesus compassionately addresses Mary from the cross while he's dying to make sure she has care and oversight from somebody else in that culture where Mary as a widow, Joseph's been gone, we don't know where, she's a widow and now her son is going to be gone. He cares for her with one of the dying breaths by saying in John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, our author, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. That same word. So in case you're like, I can't unhear the woman, you can unhear it by listening to this. Woman, here's your son. And John, take care of my mom. You guys are family now. And so that same tone, take, grab it from there if it bothers you here. It's okay if it bothers you here, but you know, just let it, let it be what it is to Jesus. So he uses this woman uh, name as a, in a clear moment of compassion and care. So we are not going to read it with derogatory sass which our culture would read into it. So back to the wedding. Why woman here? Why woman instead of mom? It's a fair question. The fact that it flags to us is still fair. So why? We don't totally know, but perhaps this is a moment to differentiate from whom Jesus now 
takes instructions. Family dynamics are incredibly important in this culture. A grown man listens and honors, listens to and honors his mother still. So perhaps this is a moment when Jesus is differentiating by saying, my time has not yet come, that he is saying to his mom, who knows who he is, my instructions are now according to the will of my heavenly father. Mary would understand that this moment was going to come. Perhaps this is uh, noteworthy that this moment is happening. This, differenti this differentiation um, to call her woman is happening around the time when he's saying now, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mom? Who are they? They're the ones around me who are following the will of the father, right? In Matthew 12, 48, he replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, followers then and followers now. He points to us and says, here are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. This is family now. So he's doing this differentiation. I tend to lean towards the interpretation that this is during a moment when family definitions are shifting in the ministry of Jesus. And he is now saying nothing condescending. Nothing. It's Jesus. Nothing condescending or derogatory at all. But he is saying, woman, it's time that now I am going to follow the instructions of my father, and this is my broad family now. I tend to think that way. However, even when we remove the sass and the derogatory tone that we tend to read, we remove all that and allow it to be tender and even compassionate name towards Mary. The truth remains that it's some kind of rebuke or correction to her. He doesn't just say, okay, right? He says something different. He's saying, even if tender, why do you involve me? If I'm honest with you, I don't love that translation. I love the NIV. 99 point lots percent of the time. I love the NIV. But this one I don't think quite captures it because it's not just about him saying this isn't my problem. That's not quite what I think is supposed to be captured here. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says that's not our problem. I think that's getting closer. A literal translation according to the people who know Greek, my commentators, not me. I am not a Greek scholar. But they said it's more of what is that to me and you? It's a, it's a joint, it's an us thing. Why are we worried about this? Why, why is this our concern? And then immediately after, my time has not yet come. I am acting on my father's timeline and I'm going to be listening to when my father in heaven says that it is my time. But you guys, even if it is, whatever that tone is that we want to try to get into, because we're lingering in these stories, we're trying to hear tone, we're trying to build in pauses, awkwardness, sit in whatever the story brings. So even if there is some version of rebuke or correction to Mary, it's with such affection and some degree still of, of honor or tenderness that her response still Instead of saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have asked anything of you. She doesn't do that, does she? Instead, she is still able to go with confidence to the servants of the wedding and say, do whatever he tells you. Was it in his tone? Was it in the look he gave to his mother? Was there something that let her know that she still could go and instruct the servants, just do what he says? Back to my earlier comment about reading this along with our GC earlier this week. 
It was so good to hear different observations and different reactions of different people that I want to do the same for us all here and take from some of the scholarship some different thoughts. I'm going to just spread them out so you can grab what you want, leave what you don't want. This is one of the things that we can do when we're reading a text. Let me show you a few things that people tend to sit and ponder in this passage and just let you um, sort of taste them and see what you want to keep. So anyway, a couple observations to linger with. Some folks love to meditate on the beauty of the little detail that we can easily miss, that this new wine is brought forth in vessels, in, in pottery, in jars that previously were used for Jewish ceremonial washing. There's something kind of beautiful that the new is greater than what was before the ceremonial washing that would do the cleansing. And now there's something new. In those same vessels, Jesus is doing a new thing. There's something beautiful in that little detail. As N.T. Wright says, he's bringing transformation in a whole new way as compared to the ritual cleaning that would have been required by the law. There's some beauty in the jars themselves. Another commentator says this, Christ significantly began his public ministry with a miracle of transformation. Just to sit in the transformation water to wine. If we just meditate on that act itself, it goes on to say this, his whole mission was to convert sinners into saints, to turn grief into joy, to elevate earth to heaven. If all that's to come is a ministry of transformation, how beautiful that we start with water to wine. It's a beautiful thing. Good to think about. Others meditate this. We don't know how Jesus did it. What did he do? Did he do something with his hands? Did he use his words to command the water to change to wine? Did he pray and it happened? We actually don't know. And it's okay to be like, I want to like sit in that piece of a question mark and just ponder, wonder, just enjoy the miracle of how it happened. Jesus did a miraculous thing and we don't even need to know how, but that's kind of neat to meditate on. These are some things that people like to just chew on from this story. And then of course, beautifully, this part to meditate on. Who knew about this? Who knew in this moment? The servants and later the disciples and Mary, not the master of the banquet, not the hosts, not the guests, the servants. They filled the jars with water and then wine came out. And who in the big crowd knew? The servants, the disciples, Mary, not everybody. There's some beautiful things to think about. The master of the banquet tastes this wine and announces to the bridegroom, you have saved the best until now. And while that statement is miscredited, that statement of truth is given credit to the bridegroom. That's the wrong place, right? But the statement itself is true. We've already had the law, the ceremonial washings, the prophecies, but now the best is here. It's been saved until now, and we're experiencing it at this wedding. So the statement has beauty because, again, it's misdirected from the master of the banquet, but we as readers who have come to see and believe what John is saying, we get to see a deeper truth in those words. You have saved the best until now. Now, here, we have this first sign, as John says, of what's to come. 
of what God is doing in and through Jesus. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, according to verse 2:11, I'm reading, it was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the best is here, and this is a sign of what's happening. John uses this specific term, sign, throughout his gospel for a group of miracles performed by Jesus. But these signs are beyond miracles. They're also linked somehow to a belief or a trust beyond the act itself. So if a miracle is something that defies the laws of nature, something that shouldn't, couldn't happen, and yet it does. If that's a miracle, John's version, when he says a sign, it's like a public miracle that is now being used to reveal who Jesus is, but it requires faith to perceive the fullness of what is being done. So it's a miracle that requires faith to see the fullness. N.T. Wright would say, these are like moments when heaven and earth intersect. Like what I talked about last week, that moment when the son of God and the son of man come together and the veil is thin. That's where a sign is. These moments between human and divine, these are signs and this is the first one. So to perceive the deeper significance of a physical miracle, miracle, one needs this openness to faith that John, our writer here, is trying to foster, to stir up in our hearts. So this is the first sign of Jesus, his true identity, his true purpose. And one of the beautiful things about this sign, which requires faith, is the early readers would be able to ascribe to this sign really deep historical significance for the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, they were clinging to faith that promises of um, what was to come. And in some of these promises, we hear this kind of language. I'm going to read this portion of Isaiah, who uh, a prophet for, as recorded in the Old Testament from 25 verses 6 to 9. Just listen to this and then imagine you're a servant serving this feast at this particular ceremony. And you know this scripture. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that day he will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That day when the feast comes with new aged wine, this outpouring of abundance and overflow, that feast, and you're at this banquet and you just experienced that new wine coming. I have up here also a list of other prophetic utterances that include this idea, this concept of new wine that God will provide at some point. And the Israelites, the people of God were hungry for these promises to come true. And now according to John, we see this first sign being water to wine. It's so deep and beautiful. And so a morsel of faith in those Old Testament promises of God would be recalled in the cultural memory of the people who followed God. They'd be recalled and then ignited and then magnified by this witnessing the first sign of Jesus as the promised Messiah. So a morsel of faith recalled, ignited, and magnified in this moment.
Here is where this first miracle, if we're giving options of what to meditate on from this story, I'm gonna give you mine because I love this part of the story. The thing that blows me away in this sign is the abundance the extravagance and the gratuitous delight. Gratuitous is like unnecessary, but free. Like over the top. This was not a necessary thing, but it's freely out there. Gratuitous. It's a great word. The abundance, the extravagance, and the gratuitous delight. What do I mean? When I read through all the gospels, I love the healings. The people restored not only to their body, body's proper functioning, but into society, into life in the temple. I love when Jesus saves a life on those multiple levels. Restoring sight, uh, re restoration of community for lepers, um, restoration of legs so people can walk and all of that stuff. I love when the social outcasts are redeemed back into their um, whole state. I just, I love that when they're elevated by Jesus. I love it when uh, he feeds the hungry, this beautiful life-changing plethora of miracles that we get to see Jesus do. I love those. I'm also challenged by the bold miracles of Jesus. As somebody who can tend to be a people pleaser, I'm really challenged when he goes and does something that makes the religious leaders really angry and does something deep, like healing on the Sabbath. And I'm like, ooh, uh-oh, did we need to do it today? Like, I confess, I get challenged by his boldness of some of his miracles and just the things that he was willing to do to follow the will of the Father so good. I love the beauty and the challenge of all of those miracles when we sit in each story. But according to John, Jesus's first miracle, the initial sign of who he really was, was turning water into wine at a party. I mean, it's a miracle and that's really cool. It defied the laws of nature. The molecular structure of water is literally altered in some way that doesn't ever happen except through a miracle of Jesus apparently so this is like yeah it's really cool in of itself but you guys it blows me away it's gratuitous generosity it's not saving a life or anything like that it's not that level of it, it's just gratuitous abundance and delight just overflowing just because I love that about this story abundance extravagance and gratuitous delight it speaks to, it whispers ahead of that time to the richness, fullness, generosity, and over-the-topness of what God has come to do in Jesus. One of the books I was reading said that somebody did the math, I did not, on taking the jugs into gallons and gallons into bottles, and this would have been 907 bottles of wine. That's gratuitous abundance. That is over-the-top of provision. And this is not Trader Joe three buck chuck. Like this is the stuff that is so good. It is generous provision, more than is needed, of superior wine, better than what was before. So far beyond. It's not meeting a need. It's not swooping in for a rescue. It's God's kingdom saying, I'm not just about enough. This is life to the full that I am here to bring. Jesus later in John 10, 10 is recorded as saying, the thief comes to steal, steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life. Remember John's purpose, that you would have life in his name. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. That is overflow, overflow pour out, spill over the top delight. And that is what's being shown now. The 
best has been saved until now. I love that. Gratuitous overflow. That's one thing. And then, again, as if that in and of itself isn't enough to just delight in, to sit in the overflow of. It's who, to whom he reveals this generous overflow. He didn't take public credit for it. When the master of the banquet goes and gives credit to the bridegroom, Jesus wasn't like, actually, I did that. That was my sign that I'm the son of God. Jesus didn't do any of that. He just allowed that to happen because he knew who knew. And he was satisfied with who knew the truth of that moment. He didn't make a scene. The servants know. The disciples know. My mom always knew. I'm good. That was enough. He could have waited and done this wine bit at the moment that he was already feeding the 5,000 with bread. He could have let 5,000 people know and go out and say it, but it didn't need to be that. The whisper, the start of what was happening, it was okay with Jesus to start out in this way. The first to know, of course, were the shepherds, but now the first to know again, now that it's actually time are the servants, the servants at a wedding. The news of this sign started to spread first through the least of these, right? Not through the religious elite who were waiting to hear, but it was coming through the people who were considered in society to not be the big deals. And that is beautiful, important. So God's kingdom, imagine being a servant, right? God's kingdom came for us to see first. We've been waiting for the religious leaders to tell us that it's here, but like we are actually gonna be the ones who see this for experience, this first. This fact, this piece of beauty reflects God's kingdom ethic, the leveling of all of the layering that social constructs do are going to be leveled in the person and the work of Jesus. This kingdom ushered in is going to level everything. And this is a signpost of that, that the first to know are the servants and the disciples who, by the way, they became a really big deal in the life of the early church. At this point, we're talking fishermen, tax collectors, non-big deals, all non-big deals, every one of them at this point. And they are going to be the first to know that this embodied glory of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us provided new wine, like all of the Old Testament said would happen. New wine, and they are the first to witness this glory. I go again to chapter two, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. All the way back in Exodus 16.10, for those who were here during temple presence, remember when we talked about God's presence being in the, in the smoke, the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire? Uh, in Exodus 16.10, we see that the children of God would see the glory of God in that pillar of smoke. Now we are seeing the glory of God recorded here through this sign of Jesus. They saw his glory. They have been waiting as the people of God to see that glory again for so long. And the servant saw it and the disciples saw it and it was revealed in extravagant abundance and gratuitous delight. That was the choice way to announce this arrival. 
in this series, we want to be doing a few things. We want to linger in the story. We want to talk a lot about Jesus. We want to cast our gaze on Jesus. We want to listen to Jesus, all that stuff. But we don't just want to talk about Jesus from here. We want to actually be speaking with Jesus ourselves. And so every week we want to be having some space to actually respond to whatever it is that might be highlighted to us. And as I sat here this week, when I'm reading one of these stories on Sunday, I've tried to just sit in the story myself all week. And as I was sitting in this story, the thing that was coming up to me, again, Take it or leave it, whatever is coming up for you. But the thing that I started to wonder when I was talking about this story with Jesus in my own prayers, I was like, how do we even respond to such an over-the-top generosity, an overflow of delight for the sake of delight, for the purpose of delight? That, like, that's it. That's what's happening here. How do we even respond to the over-the-top generosity? What do we say in response to that? How, how do I actually hear my heart respond when my heart is used to keeping score? Now what do I owe you, you know? Or what do I have to do to, 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 to get that thing? Like, I, how do I break that down and just say, like, Jesus' intention is just to gratuitous overflow and my heart culturally is wired to think there's a string attached how do I even respond to this how can I start to receive it just open-handed with no strings attached I want to but I can say to Jesus that I might need help in simply receiving this level of abundance and overflow just because it delights God to delight me I want to be able to receive that, but that might take a bit of a conversation. And then lastly, only after I've been able to sit in the deluge of delight and soak in what the Lord has for me, I might respond to Jesus by asking, how can I even begin to reflect such generous overflow of delight, abundance, provision, extravagance with no strings attached? How can I reflect that outward? Because I know a lot of thirsty people around me. I see a lot of thirsty places in our world and in our city. How can I begin to think about that? All of these are conversations after hearing about Jesus that we might talk about with Jesus. So we want to take a little time to do those things now. I just want to take a moment, if you'd be willing to just allow your posture to stop hearing. I mean, I'm I'm going to still pray so you can hear me, but like it's, this is a different posture than, than hearing about Jesus. Now we just pray like, Lord Jesus, just come. Just overwhelm us with your love. Overwhelm us with the gift. That's what this wine is. This wine is a gift, a deluge of delight that is a gift because you have offered that you give this gift freely for all, for all who would say, I know I need this. I know I don't have it on my own. I know I fall short of the glory of God, but we have seen you, the glory of God, and you give us this freedom to say, I want forgiveness. I want to be made whole. I need you. Lord, we need you. Like the song says, we need you. So God, help us to just sit here and ponder the beauty of this miracle, the the extravagance and the delight of it all, and to see your glory in it. Not just see it, but 
try to be willing to receive that so that our lives being changed and marked by life in the name of Jesus may also be a signpost to others that there is the same gift of grace and freedom and abundance being offered to every single person who calls on the name of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.